On today's episode, Common Strength Training Errors with Charlie Reed. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, Run Smarter Scholars. Today we have Charlie Reed. Charlie is a kinesiologist and a very experienced strength and conditioning specialist. I uh, had a read of one of his blogs and it was titled Five Common Errors Runners Make with Strength Training. Loved it. Listened to a um, podcast as he appeared on a, as a guest to talk about these sort of things. Absolutely loved the level of knowledge he had and had to reach out because I think this is a really nice topic that runners need to hear. A lot of errors and lessons that uh, could be crucial for your training to help you perform, help you build out your running IQ and running resilience. And so hopefully you enjoy. I know this is 197 episode. Uh, I think for the 200th episode, I might just do a Q&A episode. Might have some people what I try and do is people who submit questions ask if they want to record themselves asking the question as well. I think that's quite um, enjoyable, better to listen to, more interactive. And so hopefully we get a couple of people on board to do that. And yeah, well, I'll answer all your questions on episode number 200 and I'll do my best to schedule things out um, over the summer break, over Christmas and over New Year's. And so uh, episodes will be delivered uninterrupted while I'm perhaps at the beach away, um, just taking a little bit of downtime. I do have planned episodes all the way until I think the 14th of January. Um, not that they've been recorded yet or, and scheduled to go out, but um, the future guests I have on in the next week or so and a couple of my solo episodes I have in mind um, takes me all the way to the 14th of January. So, um, hopefully by the time Christmas rolls around, that sort of, uh, those episodes are all scheduled to go out and then you guys can enjoy, you guys can train for your, your marathons and your long runs and listen to these episodes uninterrupted, still, um, pumping out twice a week. And so, uh, let's bring on Charlie. Uh, we talk about these five errors that he has. We talk just in sequential order, just going from error one to error five with a few tangents here and there based on the, the topic of discussion. Um, it was a great chat. And so I'm really happy I got to chat with Charlie. Charlie Reed, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. 
delving into a few of your previous podcast episodes, listening to a few um, podcasts you were interviewed on, and I really like your wisdom. I really like the topic around strength and conditioning. I've got tons of previous podcast episodes on why runners should strength train. Hopefully, I've convinced a few of them, but I'm excited to dive into your opinion on a couple of mistakes that runners make with their strength training. But before we do that, do you mind just kicking us off with describing like your career and how it's how you've developed such an interest with strength and conditioning and particular with runners? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I get better every time I, uh, I get more concise every time I get <laughs> asked this question, but, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, got my undergrad in kinesiology, exercise physiology in San Diego. Uh, it's about 20 years, <laughs> almost 20 years at this point. Uh, and yeah, I was, my story really getting into fitness was I was an overweight teenager. I think a lot of, uh, strength and conditioning professionals, personal trainers, uh, physical prep coaches, they all tend to get into this either from being an athlete previously or um, having a transformation of some sort. So mine, mine certainly fell into the transformation piece. I lost about 50-ish pounds in, in high school and certainly changed my life. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of my mission moving forward. I, I got my undergrad in kinesiology, started training straight away. I was an intern at the strength and conditioning there at San Diego State and worked with a whole host of athletes there um, played various sports. I played rugby for a little bit in, in college, got into strength athletics and strength sports. Um, and then I moved up to the Bay area and that's really where my story kind of transitioned into working with more endurance athletes. Um, you know, just by proximity, we have a, a big population of endurance athletes, triathletes, runners, cyclists, just by nature of being in the San Francisco Bay area, we have such a wonderful place to do all those activities. And so by nature of my training business, just being exposed to these athletes, that's kind of where I, I fell into this. Um, it wasn't my intention initially to, to start working with these athletes, but uh, it just kind of grew over time. And, uh, and it's been a great journey so far. And it's wonderful. You know, runners and, and triathletes are incredibly motivated people. And I, they're also a population that I think really benefits from the work that I do. So it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, for sure. Nice. And so at that time, was it purely just the population itself coming to you or over time, did you start to develop an interest with working the, with these populations? Yeah, good question. Um, it certainly was, you know, I had a few of them kind of fall into my lap and, uh, you know, I, I, I'd work, I would say I would, I worked with runners, um, and cyclists, some triathletes off and on recreationally. Um, but it wasn't until I think four or five years ago that I started working with a pro triathlete, female pro triathlete that I started really, really diving deep and, and trying to understand, uh, running and, and cycling and swimming triathlon and just trying to understand those things a little bit on a, on a deeper level. Um, so I would say, yeah, certainly the last five years is kind of, I've really, really dove pretty hard into those sports to try and understand uh, not only the sport itself, but how strength and conditioning plays a significant role in, in those activities. Um, and it's just been an ongoing kind of journey ever since, you know, I try to follow the literature and, and also just see what other coaches are doing and try to understand other people's approaches and then make some sense of nice. it. Nice. So. And what got me onto your stuff originally was uh, you being interviewed on other podcasts and mentioning your 
blog around five common mistakes, common errors that runners make with strength training, which is kind of how I wanted to set up the the interview itself and just go through those five common mistakes. And the first one being allocating too much low intensity into your strength training. Um, do you mind explaining that a right. little bit and where that error comes about? Certainly. Yeah. So, you know, when I initially started looking at what runners and triathletes were doing, one, I would ask these athletes what, what they had been doing or what their relationship with strength and conditioning was doing or what they were doing at the time. And it seems to be that there are really two camps. There are athletes that either did no strength training at all, or maybe they were doing what I would consider old, like rehabilitation type, type exercises. So they would have a, uh, you know, a script of PT exercises they may have gotten 10 years ago that they just keep doing repetitively the same routine over and over and over again. Um, and so I realized, you know, I realized pretty early on that a lot of runners uh, didn't really understand, you know, what, what formal strength and conditioning really was. And I think there was a disconnect there in regards to um, how to structure a program, all the nuts and bolts, which is really the motivation to why I wrote that art article for triathlete magazine, because I saw this big gap between uh, triathletes and runners, cyclists, just not knowing, not knowing where to go for sound strength and conditioning advice. Or sometimes you'd have a situation where a coach might try to write a program, but the the sport coach might not really have a strength and conditioning background, which I think is what makes me a little bit more unique. You know, I'm not coming at this from, uh, you know, a running background or triathlete background. I am a I'm a trained strength and conditioning professional coming to the sport, trying to apply you know, the best, best fit practices to the sport that makes the most sense. So you wouldn't want to ask me about, you know, how to coach running or running mechanics, but that's not really my role, you know? Um, so to your, to, to your, you know, to your question, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of athletes, they, they will consider rehab type exercises as strength training, but from what we know in the literature, if you really want to build strength, which is your ability to produce force, force production, we really need to start handling loads that are considerably heavier, heavier than things that you would do with a mini band or even your body weight. And I'm not disparaging, you know, I'm not saying that those are bad exercises. There's, there's a time and place for rehabilitation exercises. We just want to make sure to not conflate the two as, as, as confusing them with, with mm. strength. Training. I can see the same mistake when I chat with injured runners and they say, I've done strength training, I've done my rehab and it doesn't work. And then you ask over a right. long period of time, like what, ha what are their exercises? And they've just been doing bodyweight bridges and they've been doing like bodyweight calf raises and those sort of exercises for months and thinking to themselves, I'm not getting any better. This isn't working. And really what they should be doing is progressing through them. Or they say that they find initial success. They say, oh, the strengthening exercises worked well for the first couple of weeks, but then it plateaued out. And you can clearly see that it's right. the strength gains initially, but then the, the body's asking for more. It's asking for a progression and just not seeing that. And um, around this like low intensity, doing too much low intensity, a lot of runners when it comes to their cardio workouts and their, their intensities when they do their cardio workouts, they tend to follow uh, an 80-20 rule of like 80% of their weekly volume just being low intensity, leaving 20% to work into higher, more intense efforts should we consider strength training completely different to that? You know, I, I think strength is probably a little bit different there. 
I understand that the 80-20 concept, you know, Steven Seiler, polarized type of training within the sports of running and, and endurance sports makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess one way to look at that is if you, I think we can get rid of a lot of superfluous volume in strength training. Sometimes people will have a laundry list of 12, 13 exercises. And I, so in that sense, I think you can chop off a lot of stuff and just make things a little bit simpler. That's certainly something that I try to do with athletes is really trying to distill down to what the most important things to focus on are. Uh, and hopefully over time, as my understanding and practice grows, my goal is to always do less things, but have those less things be more effective. Um, so in regards to maybe 80-20 in a strength and conditioning context, I guess we could say that um, avoiding doing too much superfluous volume, whether that's exercises or you know too many like high rep sets of activities, um, could could maybe be um, could fit that mold there, but I don't, I'm not sure it's necessarily the same mm. thing. So would that be the question yeah. you'd be asking a runner to make sure that their intensity is well balanced? Would you ask them things about sets and reps and how you feel at the end of a set? And obviously, runners will have different experiences, different strength, different volumes of strength, and so a weight necessarily will be different between people. But are you just getting? qualitative or quantitative like data around how they feel during their exercises or what they're pushing themselves to, what their limits are. Yeah. So just to put some teeth to that, like in a context of somebody that's brand new, that would come to me that knows nothing about strength, uh, strength training, which is quite common in, in runners and triathletes. They tend to, in my opinion, have a training age of zero in the in the weight room. You know, they might be very accomplished runners or triathletes, but they have very poor physical literacy when it, when it comes to the weight room. So they need to learn first and foremost skill acquisition. They need to learn the skills, the rudiments of strength training. Uh, and those are things like, do you know what a squat looks like? Uh, do you know what a hip hinge, hip hinging or hip dominant activity is? You know, we'll look at a, a single leg stance and a lunge, uh, you know, single leg type activities. So those are all things that, um, I kind of assess first because skill is, is really going to be the most important quality that we want to address before we start packing on the weight and the load. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. And then when we start getting into intensities, we certainly wouldn't start loading them up with like heavy weights right away. We're gonna want to spend a little bit more time, uh, you know, in those higher repetition ranges. And then I start to educate the athlete on how we how a program is, is supposed to be structured. So for a beginner, doing a very simple linear progression, what we call linear periodization, uh, which is just kind of fancy terminology for, uh, you know, progressing a, a, in a planned schedule, progressing from a um, a higher rep, lower weight to a heavier weight, or, or sorry, uh, say that right. <laughs> so higher rep, lower weight to a heavier weight, lower rep. That makes sense. So we might start in the first weeks doing sets of, you know, 15 to 20, and then we taper down to heavier weights over those weeks. Uh, and the good thing for beginners is you don't have to change the variation in exercise very much. So you can keep the same exercises because you, again, want them to build that skill over a time frame. Uh, for more advanced athletes, intermediate and advanced athletes that have a higher training age, you know, they're going to require more complicated periodization plans. But those are things that, you know, for probably most of your listeners that are recreational runners, uh, it doesn't need to really be that complicated. Mm. When it comes yeah. to the term strength and conditioning, where strength and conditioning are, is good for running performance, that's more the strength component of like 
packing on the weights, making sure you've got the skill, making sure you've got the technique, and then going from a high rep to a lower rep, higher weight scenario. What about the conditioning side of things? What, how much time should we allocate to that component? And what, what exactly are we looking at for a runner to, to fit into that conditioning sort of piece? Yeah, I suppose I suppose I would need to understand what you mean by conditioning. I mean, these are all terminologies that we use. You know, when I look at the sport of running, it's conditioning is just, you know, doing more work over time, um, which can include all of that, you know, running and, and strength. But I, I don't I wouldn't say that, you know, I focus mostly on the conditioning aspects of it. I focus more on the the movement mechanics and the force producing capabilities within the mm. weight room. Uh, right. So when it comes to like their run training, I, I leave that up to them and the coaches. Yeah. I see different. Um, and again, that's just yeah. my role. But. When I look up different, um, like read different books around strength and conditioning and look at different blogs and things, I see the conditioning more of the, say, core strengthening or like the lower intensity side of things. And it's more building up <clears throat> form or technique or balance balance might be a good example um coordination those sort of things and um the strength is being purely strength focused and so having that nice maybe balance uh, like having some sort of um well-balanced intensities around you know dedicating the goal to be eventually progressing to strength um but then maybe the the conditioning can go alongside it but in my mind doesn't seem that important when it comes to running performance. No, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I, yeah. Again, it's just sometimes it's, just wor- it's word salad, right? We're just like talking about terms. So I have some distinct categories when I look at a, a program for a runner. So I have what I would consider the general preparation phase, uh, which would include things like building skill acquisition and just working on basic movement mechanics, maybe addressing any mobility deficits that the athlete might have. And just working on patterning and skill and within that that block of training too we're also going to be focusing on more sub maximal um higher repetition range type activities because we can start to build as you said maybe conditioning if you want to use that word some building some muscular endurance uh starting to build up some capacity so that we can prepare the body and the tissues for the heavier loads that are going to follow that preparation block and that's typically done uh, after the race season is over uh in the off season it's a chance for the the athlete to kind of heal up and um and again this is assuming that we're we're talking about an annual plan i understand recreational runners it's a little different because they may be all over the place in regards to how their races are structured throughout the year you know they might be racing all year long or or doing stuff but if if we were i'm going to kind of speak to you as if we were talking about an annual plan because that's kind of more it's, I think it's easier to wrap your head around and kind of see the, the pieces moving in mm. place. I know. But in the real world, it's it's a little more complex yeah, of than course. that. <laughs> Oftentimes. Yeah. A lot of times, like yeah. when I ask questions, a lot of the answers are, well, it depends. Well, it depends on the runner. It depends on their goals. It depends on yeah. the person. I know. I, I love and I hate <laughs> that, you know, because I want to I want to give people something to sink their teeth into. But the, you're, you're right. It's it, it, it's never yeah. cut and dry, right? There's always things that come. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. 
The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Um, And as we we have tangents within this little topic, we sort of carry over into error number two that you have, which is avoiding heavy lifting. And I guess the first follow-up question I should have is, like, how heavy are we talking? What should be the aim? Do you have a sets and reps kind of goal that you should you should aim for? Yeah. So in the literature, when we look at the benefits of strength training for runners and endurance athletes, particularly with runners, when we look at running economy, um, we want to try to really push the, the, the strength up to, it's, it really ranges anywhere between 80 and 85% of one RM. Uh, we need to have those those heavier loads in order to stimulate those adaptations. And so really anything under that is not going to have the same carryover. Uh, I would also argue too, that those heavier loads are really where your connective tissue, your joint capsules, your tendons, the structure or the chassis of your body, that's really what makes those uh, areas really resilient. Um, but again, we has to be uh, followed by, has to be preceded by a general preparation phase. So I would never throw an athlete under heavy loads right away, especially if they have a training age of zero or a very low training age. And we also have to find appropriate activities for that athlete to be able to load heavily that matches their skill, coordination, and mobility, right? So if somebody can't hinge at their hips, then I'm not going to have them do a deadlift, for example. And this is a common error I see a lot of times uh, with, with coaches is they'll just have them do a back squat or a front squat and they can't even flex their elbows all the way. If you cannot get your elbows in full flexion, you should not be doing a front squat in my opinion, but I see them do that all the time. And I I will also say that a lot of strength coaches and, you know, I'm going to throw my own, my own uh, community under the bus here is that we try to fit certain exercises to the athlete as opposed to fitting the athlete to the exercises. And what I say is that runners, especially really good runners, uh, they have a very, specific set of limb, uh, you know, uh, ratios. And, and so they have different limb lengths. And so if you have longer femurs, uh, you know, shorter torsos, it's going to make squatting look a little different than, than somebody that was naturally built to be a good squatter. So I like to find activities that are going to put the athlete in the best position to express force and not get hurt. Um, and so that often means that I, I have an eclectic set of tools that I draw from, uh, that allows me to do that as opposed to saying everybody must back squat or everybody must front squat or, or mm. deadlift. But to your question, yeah, with the weights certainly do need to be heavy in order to get those adaptations. Uh, if yeah. someone has a training age of zero and they are a recreational mm-hmm. runner, say <clears throat> mid thirties, love running, do a couple of year, but then they're like, okay, let me dedicate some time to strength training and they want to do it properly. Mm-hmm. How long, on average, I know this is going to depend, but around about what's a general time frame before they can build up to actually being strong enough to reach around that, you know, or be experienced enough to to handle the 80 to 85% one RM? Uh, you know, it could be as little as eight to 12 weeks, I would say. Um, and you can do that with things that like even a leg press. I'll use a leg press as an example. I'm not a, I'm not opposed to machines. I think, you know, in in the functional training world, people, you know, like to talk badly about machines, but you know, if somebody has access to machines and they're going to be willing to do them and it's going to allow them to load safely, load them up heavy on a leg press. Right. Uh, Whereas somebody that say we're doing an equivalent exercise, 
you know, the squat, like a back squat, for example, that might require a little bit more skill. And oftentimes the limiter on a back squat may not be their legs. It may just be that their, their trunk and their lower back or whatever just can't handle the load. And so I might not select that activity for that athlete uh, if it's not appropriate. So, but yeah, you know, a, a general, just to give you a general outline, if I were to have somebody who was brand new, I would at least spend a month with them doing what I would call a general physical prep phase. That would be those higher rep activities. But often, you know, with my master's runners, older runners, um, or even people coming off injury, I might actually spend their whole first season doing just sub-maximal activities. And if I really had my way, I mean, everybody's impatient and wants to be better now. But, you know, I, if I had my way and I could wave a magic wand, I would rather have people take their time and, and really focus on good mechanics and, uh, and progress slowly over time. Because the reality is, you know, to, to get stronger, it's not going to happen in a month or two. If you really want to be strong, it's going to take years. So you should really think more in years and less in weeks and months. That's not to say that you won't see results or start feeling better uh, or moving better. But at the same time, it's not going to happen in just a four-week or eight-week program. It's going to take some time. And if someone does eventually progress to the point where they're achieving that rep range, they're achieving that 80 to 85% 1RM, What's the usual dosages? Like how many sets and reps are we doing? And how often are we, um, how frequently are we administering that? Uh, good question. Yeah. So typically in the off season, I'm going to expose an athlete usually on average about two times a week. Now that can be pushed to three times a week for some athletes, depending on their schedule. But I typically find that most runners, triathletes respond really well to two days a week of strength training. And they could get along with that, you know, fairly well for a long period of time. As far as sets and reps, you know, because these athletes are not like powerlifters, bodybuilders, strength athletes, we don't need to do a whole lot of high volume because our goal is not necessarily to put size on them. It's really to make them strong and more efficient. And so, you know, if, if I were to give a hypothetical here, like, you know, two to three working sets of heavier loads is going to be likely sufficient to get them where they need to go. I might extend it out to four sets on occasion. Uh, and the repetition ranges, depending on the, again, the training age and the experience of the athletes, uh, I will probably not go any lower than five repetitions for most novices. I've, uh, as you get into the more intermediate advanced stages, I might drop those reps down into the three to six range. But I never do like true one RM kind of stuff with, with these athletes because also endurance athletes, their physiology is much different than a pure power or strength athlete. And they don't really have the skill or the, um, the recruitment ability to really express force in a one RM the same way that a strength athlete would, nor do they really need it. Also, if you, and you can actually test this, I've, I've done repetition maximum tests where I'll have an athlete let's say on a trap bar deadlift, you know, they couldn't lift a hundred pounds off the floor, but they can do, you know, 30 reps with 80 pounds, right. Because they're more slow twitch dominant. Right. And so, uh, yeah, so, so the, their physiology is just much different than a, than a pure strength athlete would be. But that, that being said, I still want them to get more and more comfortable with lifting heavier loads. And also remember too, that it's, there's also a psychological component to lifting heavy. It's a very different uh, experience for endurance athletes, you know, as, as endurance athletes, 
your goal is the sport is all about conserving energy and not going too hard. Right. And you get into the weight room and I'm telling you, I need you to go hard, you know? And so it's a very, it's a almost a completely different skill set that you're trying mm -hmm. to develop. And so part of that is a psychological grooming and education that takes place with the athlete to learn how to, to really, you know, push in the weight room at the appropriate yeah. times. And that's where kind of experience comes into it as well. I remember sometimes a back squat, if you, if you have a barbell back squat and you do some squats and it's kind of heavy, you, there's, there can be a little bit of fear associated with that. What about if I can't push it back up? What yes. if, like I remember when I started CrossFit a couple of years ago and I very first started doing snatches and like putting the weight over my head and then trying to up the weights and try like my heaviest weight of all time. I'm like, can I get it over my head? I had no idea. I was actually quite scared and it's quite confronting. Um, but I guess that's where... Um, having some safety measures in place or ha knowing how to get out of a <clears throat> certain exercise. I, I guess what would be your advice for someone who is worried and not increasing the weight because they're too scared about doing something that might, they feel like puts them in a vulnerable position? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say always err on the side of caution and it's okay to cut the set, you know, a couple reps short if it doesn't feel right. The, the part of what I'm working with an athlete initially is getting them to, to feel what it feels like when a lift feels right. And if you're really lifting a weight correctly, it should feel like your whole body is contributing to the motion. Your whole body should be involved. If you're feeling like one area and that's all, that's the only place you feel it. Like that's, a, that's going to be a yellow to red flag for me. Um, and also remember too that it's I think athletes can they can confuse strength training with they try to strength test themselves when they're in the weight room, and so not every workout is designed to be, you know, an all-out effort. It's something that you build on over time, and uh, and so yeah, there's there's no there's no easy way to do that. It's just a, a question of exposure and practice. And I always emphasize form first and skill, and then we add load and, and, and kind of increase as we go along. Mm. And sometimes you need to just increase reps with a weight or increase the number of sets with that weight until you're ready to add more weight to the bar. There's nothing wrong with that. For example, if you were able to do, you know, two sets of five reps with a hundred pounds and you're like, I don't think I could do 110 pounds, do a third set of five, you know, or do, two sets of six, three sets of six, right? There's ways that you can manipulate the program to increase that exposure, but still stay within the rep ranges that we need to stay in to make progress. And I think if people are used to doing lighter weights, they're almost used to getting a feeling of like they can't do another rep and then they put down the weights and they feel like that's the, the feel that it should happen. <clears throat> but it, it might not be necessarily the case when you start going heavy. You, you shouldn't really feel like you've squeezed out every last rep possible before you rack the weights and recover. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you touched on a really good point, Brody. And, and there's a difference between a metabolic stimulus where you're going for higher repetitions and getting what we would call the burn, what bodybuilders call the burn. You can't do any more reps because your muscles are screaming at you, right? There's a difference between that the failure in a heavy lift when we're in that 80, 85 plus percent should not be a burn in the muscles. What's going to fail first is your coordination is going to break down. Your range of motion is going to shorten or you're going to start grinding the lift. Okay. 
So your your bar speed starts to slow down. Those are the those are the times where we're going to stop the set. So those are the things that I'll I'll let the athlete know like we're going to stop the set when one of those three things happens. Mm. Uh, because we're trying to create a neurological adaptation. It's less about the muscles themselves, like building the the meat. We're trying to, the heavier weights are designed to help the brain to recruit more motor units or to recruit more muscle fibers. And so what's going to shut you down is your, your nervous system is going to break the coordination of the activity. And that's when we're going to be done with the set. Whereas if we're trying to create a hypertrophy stimulus or to build the size of a muscle or increase the capacity of that muscle, and we're doing higher repetition activities, that muscular failure is going to be from that, those metabolites that build up in the muscle where your, your body is going to be screaming at you and it's going to you know, burn. So and that's certainly what, not what we're going for uh, with endurance athletes. I want to move towards creating a neurological adaptation to get them to be able to recruit more motor units so they have a greater motor pool to draw from when they're uh, doing their sport. Uh, and, and the other end of that, as I mentioned earlier, is that heavier strength training also is going to have a greater impact on strengthening the connective tissues of the body, which we're really concerned about with overuse injuries. So strengthening tendons to get better elastic return, um, to help hopefully uh, mitigate any tendinopathies and things that might come about from the repetitive nature of the sport itself. And if you look at the tendinopathy literature, I mean, it's, it's similar to, I mean, it looks like just good strength training. It's just progressive overload over time with heavier loads you know, above 70, 75%. That's how we get tendons to, yeah. to adapt. For some reason, they just love slow, heavy load. And unfortunately, they you just don't get the same response, that same adaptation trigger to running. It just becomes very bored of the light repetitive motion. And yeah, you need to wake them up and trigger that adaptation a yep. bit more. That's it. The third one that we have, again, we've touched a little bit on this already, but failing to progress exercises or load over time. If someone is getting a bit more proficient with their strength and conditioning, um, I can definitely imagine people can become quite complacent. I'm guilty of this as well. Getting to the point where you're feeling, say, like an eight to 10 rep range and feeling like it's pretty strong but then getting quite complacent mm-hmm. for four to six weeks and being like, that's, that's strong. That's heavy. I'm feeling like I'm getting a good workout. Um, is there general mm-hmm. guidelines about how often we should be progressing or um, should we, are there any signs to know that, okay, now's the, the right time to progress? Yeah. I mean, I, so if we're looking at an annual plan again, I'll use this as an example. The off season for a runner would be the time to really build strength. So we have that general preparation phase, then we move into the strength building phase. And, but once you go into your season, and by the way, when you're in your off season, it's a good time to introduce strength training. Your volume of running should ideally be a little less and the intensity should also be lower. So you shouldn't be doing like, you know, hard hill reps and things like that when you're doing your strength training because there's going to be a little bit of inter- interference effect there. And I try to communicate as much with the coaches as possible to make sure that we're kind of syncing up and being on the same page because uh, a common error I see with another one, I didn't put in my article, but another common error I see with, with athletes is that they just throw strength training on top of their running plan without cutting back on some volume to allow for the new thing that you're doing. 
and then they wonder why they get injured or stall out. Well, it's because you just you didn't change anything about the rest of your program. You just want to keep doing the same running you've been doing and then stack on more stress with strength training. And then your body just freaks out and doesn't know what you're doing. So the off season is a good time to introduce strength training, especially if it's new, because you're likely going to be sore. You're going to have that heavy leg feeling at first, especially when we start doing those higher rep burning muscle burning type activities. Um, your running might suck a little bit in the short term because we need to prioritize the strength training before we get into the next phase. And then once your body gets used to the stimulus, it's kind of like climbing a mountain and you get acclimated, right? Uh, once you achieve that base, new baseline, you start getting stronger, you're going to just get less sore and the strength training will just actually make you feel lighter. It'll kind of potentiate your run. So you'll feel like you're floating and popping off the ground because you just have so much more strength to be able to put so much more force and elasticity into the ground. Um, also some, some things I've noticed with runners, uh, is that they feel like they recover faster from harder workouts. My older master's athletes, what I noticed with it, with a long enough history of strength training, if they, when they're going back into their build phase early in the year, it feels easier to get back up to cruising altitude again, because when you've maintained your strength or built it up to a point, it's going to be easier to add on the miles because the, the, the chassis again has been maintained and the muscles have been maintained. So they're primed and ready to add in more volume. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very common to see athletes not progressing their loads over time. That doesn't mean to say that you're going to be able to progress steadily all year long. Otherwise you'd be a world record holder in the lifts. If you just progressed every week, right? That's not possible. Um, but at some point when you're going into your race season, your goal should not be to increase strength anymore. It should be to just maintain. So we go into what we call a maintenance phase because your goal is to be racing. You're in race season at that point. Your goal is not to try and necessarily increase your weight. It's to just maintain. And what we know from the literature is that you can maintain your strength. Let's say you, uh, again, we'll use the, let's say a deadlift. If you're able to deadlift a hundred pounds, if you just take 80% of that, if you just did 80 pounds for a couple sets of five, for example, as long as you're above that 80% of what you had built, you're more likely to main, maintain that strength. You might have a little bit of decay throughout the season, but I've, I've seen figures as much as 12 to 16 weeks, 12 to 14 weeks, you can maintain that strength. So you have a good three to four months where you can, you know, not keep your strength training volume low, maybe once a week, just touch some weights at 80% for a couple sets. Uh, it shouldn't fatigue you too much and that should maintain your strength as you weather the season and hopefully stay healthy enough to keep racing. And then the off season comes again on the following year, you go back to a prep phase and then you build up again and we keep kind of moving in this stair step fashion. And of course, this is a utopian scenario that rarely <laughs> exists with athletes because something either happens with scheduling or injuries that you're working around. But, uh, in an, excuse me, in an ideal world, that's kind of what we're looking I for. I think most people can know that like the running goals is n never in an ideal world. People want to go from a marathon to an ultra marathon. Then they want to get a PB ultra marathon. Then they want to do two, yep. mo two more in a year. And then they just want to keep going. We know that's really the case. Um, but it made me thought, think yes. about when you're talking about a plan and having a strength and conditioning annual kind of plan laid out, that might actually be enough incentive or enough. Um, forward thinking to progress regularly and not get complacent because I do think a lot of runners while they have a running plan and in that running plan might have S and C on a Tuesday and a Friday. It's not necessarily yep. a goal to be like, let's in this 12 weeks, get you to 
an 80 pound deadlift or a 50 pound squat, or this is how we're going to progress from where you are now to squatting 50 pounds. And if that was on the plan, then there would be a lot more accountability or structure or enjoyment, to be honest. If you had that goal and trying to reach that goal, it would um, at least give you a little bit more um, accountability, but also, you know, just the plan itself instead of saying, okay, today is my strength and conditioning. You go in, you do the same thing you've always done, and then you leave. Right. And I think part of it's an education piece and also strength training is often thrown in as an afterthought by an athlete or a coach. So they'll just throw it in their training peaks account. Say so do a couple of lunges and butt bridges and some planks and that's your strength mm. for the week. Do the same thing for the next year. But if you say, if you're able to educate the athlete and the coaches on why each of these qualities and each of these phases is important and how it relates to their performance and their health, you know, then it's, I, I think it's, it's going to be more motivating for both parties. Um, and again, it should dovetail with the, the training plan. If there is indeed a, an annual training plan in place or some kind of plan in place, which would an ideal world would be nice. Um, and I honestly see that's, I think that's partly why people become disenchanted. Runners become disenchanted with strength training programs because they either don't see the return on investment or they, find it just makes them tired or too sore. You know what I mean? So they're not, they're either not doing the program right, or they're not doing the program at the right time coordinated with the other things going on in their life. Right. So we have to make sure that we're, we're implementing this in a way that makes yeah. sense and not just hap haphazardly throwing in strength training whenever, you know, you mm. feel like it or doing the same thing. But it also time, might be right? boring. Like if you, if you don't have a goal, if you don't have something to work towards, yes then you lack that motivation and you lack getting into the gym and doing that. Uh, I think runners in general, they can also get bored in a place in their own running if they don't have a goal to work towards. They don't have motivation yes. and the same thing can be happened with your strength training. Yes, and I will say I'll play devil's advocate for myself. I'm okay with a runner even sticking with the same you know, weight machine circuit all year long because at least they're doing some strength training. Right. So even if they never progress, the activity of even just doing the strength training is better than nothing, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. Um, just to keep them healthy enough. So I understand that not everybody's going to be able to progress all the time. And it, it is hard work. And also, I understand, too, that endurance athletes, runners, they don't love strength training. Oftentimes, it's just not fun for them. They'd much rather be outside outside on a run. And so I'm always trying to find creative ways of making the strength training process more engaging more meaningful, really connecting with their purpose and why they're doing it, and also making it as simple as possible and as concise as possible to get the greatest amount of effect with the least amount of exercises and the least amount of time invested. Bang for your buck. That's what that's what I like. I'll talk about, I'll ask for your favorite exercises in a second, but the fourth one I want Great. to talk about was um, the mistake that people make is avoiding power-based exercises and I guess we can understand why that is important, but do you have any particular favorites or do you have any guidelines about how they should be introduced? Yeah. Power is the kind of the last end of the continuum as far as progression, because those are the most amount of forces that are going to be put on the body. So when we talk about jumping activities, plyometric activities, you know, I typically save those for when an athlete has at least some kind of strength base underneath them. So, um, and that's, 
for my, for example, for my recreational, my master's athletes, those are my clients over 50. I, I certainly prioritize more of the strength side of things and the hypertrophy side of things. So we know that there's age-related changes in muscle mass as we get older. We tend to, if nothing's done about it, we tend to lose about 1% of muscle mass per year if we don't do anything about it after age 50. And power declines at about 2%. Power and strength go down quite, quite fast. Uh, so I certainly prioritize those things. Now, for my serious recreational athletes and my, my pro, my elite athletes, um, especially at the faster distances, so we talk about 5K, 10K, even marathon, those plyometric activities are going to be really valuable for increasing um, speed and uh, running economy. But I think it has to be preceded by a, a solid strength base. I want to really make sure that they're they're strong before they get into those activities. That doesn't mean I don't start introducing some of those things, uh, you know, after the warm up or in the warm ups to get them exposure to the skill uh, of of doing these power based activities. But um, so to your question, some of my favorites to start off with. I like simple, low amplitude activities to start off with. So this would be things like ankle hops. There's a series I borrowed from a uh, place called Altus. Um, it's a track and field training um, camp down in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I use a, a something in the warm-up called the Rudiment Jump Series. You can look that up on YouTube. It's just a simple set, set of ankle hopping progressions. And it's just to teach the athlete uh, to learn how to create stiffness in the lower limb and create that springiness off the ground. It's very safe. Again, it's low amplitude, so there's there's not as many not as much force because you're only bouncing up and down a little bit. Uh, and, it's, and even things like uh, jump rope can be really, really great for teaching posture and rhythm and, and also creating that ankle stiffness that you want to see coming off the ground. And also jump rope can be a great contingency plan maybe for an injured runner, a runner that's coming back off of an injury to start to stimulate, uh, you know, build the springs back up again. Uh, I also really like box jumps because we're the, what makes the plyometric activities and jumping activities the most more intense is the height of the fall. So if we have a box, then the athlete can jump and create power, but they don't have as far to fall. And the box jump can teach the athlete how to absorb force and how to land appropriately as opposed to just smacking the ground or smacking the box. So I want to first see that the athlete can land what I call ninja feet. So I want to see them be very quiet in their landings before we kind of progress to more advanced uh, plyometric activities like hopping and bounding. I really like hurdle hops a lot. So uh, progressing from two legs to one leg, because obviously running is a, is a predominantly single leg activity. So I want to get them to really understand how to um, load and unload off the ground with very fast or short, or very short ground contact times, like a pogo stick. I want to see them bounce off the ground very efficiently and not, I shouldn't see a lot of yielding or squishing into the ground. So if you see a lot of knee bending or a lot of knees diving in and things like that, it shows me that they have some other qualities to work on. And again, from a, from the beginner standpoint, they shouldn't even be doing these single leg jumping activities really until they can show me that they have a very uh, stable foot tripod. They can do a good single leg squat, um, you know, to 90 degrees and back up without seeing this valgus or knee collapse going on. And so these are kind of, and also just build up a, a foundation of strength, just get stronger in your squatting and deadlifting and lower body patterns so that when you go to do these power activities, you have, 
you know, more resilient tissues, you have enough ability to create more force to be able to handle the jumps. Um, so I think it's important to not go into those activities too soon. But, you know, you can start throwing some of the ankle hops uh, and things like that into their warm-ups. And also, during their strength phase, you can get them to start moving faster with their strength training activities. So in the general preparation phase in the beginning with those higher reps, we, I do a slower tempo, so much more slower controlled two or three second up and down kind of repetitions. When I get into more of the, the strength phase, when we're doing those lower reps, I want to go slow on the way down, and then I want them to go up as fast as possible. So I want them to explode up on each of those reps as long as they can keep good form. And so that's another way to start getting their bodies just to start getting used to moving faster, which for a lot of endurance athletes are just not used to that very fast movement. Uh, and we lose those things over time, which is why power can become more and more important as we see these age-related declines in strength and power. Um, also, uh, you know, hill sprints can be really, really great too, barring they don't have any Achilles tendon issues. Um, but again, when you look at a hill sprint, you're going up a hill, you're sprinting, but the height of the fall is not very far. So you can really build a lot of, of strength uh, and, and work on those that running running related gait pattern without uh, having such a high fall, whereas a flat sprint puts a lot more forces mm. on the body. A lot of runners um, preference mobility and stretches and range of movement, all those sort of things. But it's important to know that when it comes to performance and efficiency, we actually want a rigid, stiff leg. We want stiff tendons. We want them to operate really efficiently as a stiff kind of unit. That's how you... Um, distribute force and produce force as mechanically efficient as possible. And so, yeah, building on those, those skills and eventually progressing to, like you say, those kind of pogo ankle jumps and getting used to that fast, quick reaction is um, all developing that stiffer leg, those stiffer tendons and helping not only with injury prevention, but helping with performance over time as well. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes people prioritize mobility too much. Also remember too that good strength training is good mobility training because strength training is basically loaded stretching. You are taking your joints through a full range of motion ideally uh, with under load. And if you look at the, the, at the flexibility and mobility and stretching literature, some of the fastest ways to increase flexibility and also improve strength is by doing, is to, by doing active type stretching activities, which I would include as end range isometrics and, you know, isotonic strength training going down and up with a full range of motion. Also eccentrics where you're just lengthening a muscle under load is a great way to increase, you know, flexibility if you need mm -hmm. it. As, as you mentioned, I mean, you don't need to be a Cirque du Soleil gymnast to be a good runner. In fact, there's, there's probably a point where it's just going to make you worse. Yeah. I, I think there, so, there is yeah. not that I've seen it in a long time, but, um, research around the Nordic eccentric drops actually helping with hamstring flexibility and you're just developing a whole bunch of eccentric based stuff. You're lengthening your hamstring over time is just helping with those, the properties of the, the, yeah, the, the muscles of the, the legs, just helping with that overall range. That's right. Well, if you look at a Nordic, it's an eccentric lengthening of the hamstrings. And so if you look at the mechanism of injury, especially with hamstrings, you have a, a muscle that's lengthening under load. And that's what often causes the hamstring to pull because the hamstring can't handle those lengthening forces. 
Uh, also, when you're doing those eccentrics long enough, we start to increase sarcomeres, those muscle units, those links in the chain uh, in, in the muscle. So you actually create um, sarcomeres at end range. You're actually able to recruit in longer and longer muscle lengths. Mm. Um, so I, I, I like Nordics, uh, but again, it's a very advanced hamstring exercise. Uh, and very few people do that exercise well. Um, and, you know, uh, I would probably say that doing activities like, um, uh, hamstring curls, just good old fashioned single leg hamstring curls are a good way, place to start and doing a lot of end range, like, uh, extended knee bridges and things like that, where you're actually contracting your hamstring in the length and position is a good idea. Uh, for runners early on in their physical prep. Great. Um, the last mistake, common error that we have is being too functional. Do you want to explain exactly what you mean by this? Yeah, functional. You know, I put that in quotes because I don't even know that what that <laughs> means anymore. But, you know, 20 plus years ago, we had the, the Swiss ball revolution where everybody was dancing and doing squats, standing on a physio ball. Uh, and I think we've kind of moved past that point. But now, you know, functional has become kind of conflated with these activities that kind of mimic the activity of the sport that they're doing, right? And so you might be doing a lot of activities on one leg. Um, and I'm not saying that all these activities are bad in the right context. What I'm, what I'm trying to impress upon these athletes um, and people that are doing strength training is don't forget that that heavier loading is is going to be the most valuable thing long term for injury prevention and increasing your performance and the more complexity that the skill is and if they're in unstable surfaces uh, then it's going to decrease your ability to produce force and so this isn't always bad but just remember that the more complex a movement is the less you'll be able to load the body and strength trainers strength training for runners and triathletes is, is supplemental and should create a, a stimulus um to, to load the body in a way that strengthens the tissues. And you just can't do that if you're doing a one arm cable press standing on one leg on a BOSU ball. It's just not going to, you're not going to create the adaptations that mm. you need. Seems like the basics, so. uh, you know, the basics for a reason. And I think it can be easy to convince a runner if someone says to them, oh, that just doesn't like you shouldn't do that because it doesn't look like the running action you need to do things that look like a running action that can kind of make sense for a runner and can um i guess get them on board with doing something too functional when what you're talking about is it doesn't necessarily you can reap the benefits more doing the foundation stuff even though it doesn't necessarily look like the running action yeah and you know you might have 10 percent, 20 percent of your program at most where you're doing some kind of specialized activities to either create some context for the athlete or to work on a specific thing. It's not that I don't do like activities on one leg, for example. I still think that's important for runners. It's just not the meat and potatoes of a, of a good strength program. A good strength program should primarily consist of, um, you know, the basics, as you said, these compound uh, multi-joint movements that allow you to create more force. And then, you know, we'll work on supplemental things to work on, you know, asymmetries left to right. I still think lunges and step ups and those kind of activities, which we, some people might classify as functional. Those are wonderful exercises. And I use those quite a bit. I'm a big fan of rear foot elevated split squats, you know, single leg squats for runners. That's really, really important. But uh, if they're healthy enough to do it, you know, you can't, we can't ignore the bilateral strength training activities. 
you know, squatting, deadlifting. I love trap bar deadlifts, box squats. Those are all great activities too. Um, because, you know, the reality is that you can create more force on two legs. Um, and especially if you're a developing athlete and you have a very low, you know, very low strength levels, um, you're going to get the most bang for your buck early on, just getting stronger on general bilateral exercises and then bringing up the weak links. Um, but, you know, when I get more advanced, I care less once an athlete has a certain training age. I'm of the opinion now that once they have a certain level of, of strength on a bilateral exercise, I'm actually more concerned now about their single leg activities. Um, but again, that's now moving towards the advanced side of the mm. continuum. Well said. Right. Talking about the efficiency of things and bang for your buck, making sure that things are as concise as possible if needed to be, especially if someone's quite intimidated about the time it takes to do strength and conditioning. Do you have any, Do you have your favorites or if someone had ideal mobility, ideal skill to start with, do you have a, a good four to five exercises that you'd like them to do? Absolutely. Yeah. I would, I would pick, um, a knee dominant activity, knee dominant exercise. That would be things that are like a squat uh, or a leg press could be thrown in there. I would pick a hip dominant activity. So that would be in the hip hinge or deadlift family. That could be something like Romanian deadlifts where you're starting from the top and moving to just below the knee. That could be a deadlift from the floor if they have the appropriate mobility. Um, and hip thrusts, I don't use those a whole lot, but I'm not against a hip thrust activity if somebody knows how to do that correctly. Um, and then I would pick some kind of asymmetrical squat or unilateral single leg squatting activity. Uh, again, I don't typically do those for super heavy weights unless they're more advanced, but that's more to just work on um, coordination and, and skill uh, and work on that single leg pattern. I also really like including for, especially for runners, some kind of lower limb loading activity, but that's a calf raise, um, or calf isometrics. I'm a really big fan of getting, you can get really heavy with the calf isometric if you have, if you have appropriate equipment to do it. Um, and I also really like things like uh, loaded carry type activities. So that'd be something like a farmer's march or a farmer's carry. There's many different loaded carry variations you can do overhead carries, rack carries, things of that nature. But that really kind of builds some, it teaches the athlete about good posture, uh, being upright and also coordinating it in a gate pattern so that we could, we, I guess we can classify that as kind of a more functional activity. But again, we're loading the athlete and we're getting them to, to build up some, um, what I would consider like postural strength, right? We want to make sure the runner can maintain a good position and when you have a load in your hands or on your back or in front of you, it tells you very quickly if you're in, a, in an efficient position. And so I like those activities, especially for developing uh, runners, just to build up some capacity. Great tips there. And yeah. as we wrap up, Charlie, are there any other final takeaways, anything you we might not have covered that you'd want the, the audience to take away? Yeah, you know... Um, don't be too dogmatic about systems or tools. There's plenty of different ways to strength train and load. Find one that's appropriate for you that allows you to progress, that you have access to, and that doesn't injure you. Uh, take a long ball approach. So think in years, not just months or weeks. And um, when introducing strength training for the first time, make sure to back off you know, on, on your running volume. Uh, 
at first, just let your body get used to the new stimulus. Don't just throw strength training on top of your art, your running plan right away. And um, yeah, keep building those skills because it's something that it's not going to happen overnight. Um, don't necessarily copy what the elites are doing because they're an entirely different animal than, than the rest of us. And last thing I'll say is that the populations that I think will benefit the most from strength training are youth athletes, masters athletes, especially those over 50 uh, and females. And I think those are very underserved populations when it comes to running and strength training. And, you know, we, I, I've heard plenty of coaches talk about, you know, they don't do strength training with their athletes. Um, but, you know, if you're a 22 year old, well-muscled male, strength training probably has less of an impact on your performance. And so it's understandable how one would assume that strength training might not be helpful there. Uh, I still think it would be helpful, but that's just my bias. But unfortunately, people will take what the advice of those populations is and say like, well, that 22-year-old well-muscled male doesn't need to do it, so I don't need to do it. So just remember that when we're making recommendations that there are, there are people you know, on all spectrums of the bell curve here that, that might uh, need strength training that, that are not getting it because they're assuming that it's just not as helpful. So yeah, so I, I, those, those are my primary messages, I would say, as I try to, to um, educate people on the value of strength training for endurance athletes. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about this stuff and get, get some good information out there. So I hope it's yeah, helpful. Yeah, I've learned a lot and I really appreciate your insights. I have um, a few social media links. I have charliereadfitness.com and I have Insta on Instagram, Fitness. Is there any other links that you yep. want me to include in the show notes? That's it. I try to, uh, I'm not super active on social media, but I try to post little um, exercises on my, my page. And uh, I also share some client stories and anecdotes of stories of people that I've helped just to um, get the word out there. I try to try to provide a diverse, you know, background of people that are doing cool things because I think there's potential within all of us. And I've seen amazing people do, you know, people that I thought would never be, um, you know, as fit and as strong as they are, just do amazing things. So I like to share those things on social media. Well said. Charlie's was a great conversation. And if it's, I think there's has been enough episodes for me to convince runners about the importance of strength and conditioning, but I think this episode in particular is going to help them be as effective and um, less complacent and just enhance their, their strength and con strength and conditioning qualities. So thanks for coming on and sharing. Love it. Thanks again, Brody. Appreciate your time. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.